Hello everyone, my name is Jason Ramirez and welcome to the Hitlist Podcast, a podcast where me and a guest cross off films from our watch list and discuss them. This is Season 5, Episode 8. Today I'm joined by fellow podcaster Ryan Bolter. Welcome Ryan, thank you so much for being on the show. Thanks so much for having me Jason, I'm really glad to be here. Awesome. So before we get started, uh, I have two questions for you. Yes. My first question is, what are your viewing habits? Whenever you sit down to watch a movie, do you stick to your favorites or watch something new? Oh, that's a very good question. It really depends on the mood that uh, I'm in. If if we're going to be watching movies like around the holidays, usually we'll stick to classics, right? Mm-hmm. You're going to get your Christmas vacations. You got your Home Alones and, and all those other fun things like around the Christmas time, right? And then, you know, uh, generally we'll binge a lot of horror movies, that we've already seen around the Halloween times. Um, But like, I do tend to like not watching things over again, unless it's like old nostalgia movies, like the Goonies, the never ending story, things like that. So, yeah, I think this is, it makes sense that you would want to watch the dark crystal. Yeah. (laughs) What, what a trip. So, second question is, yeah, what's something about you that people would be surprised to know? Mm, that's a very interesting question. What would somebody be surprised? Okay, um, I probably swear more to myself when nobody's around <laughs> than anybody would ever guess. It's like the only time that those sorts of words come out is when I'm frustrated at whatever project I'm working on and nobody's around. <laughs> I could definitely relate to that. I definitely swore more as an adult than I did when I was younger. Mm-hmm. I didn't um, cuss a lot because for the most part, I didn't know what the cuss words were. That's how okay. my parents said anything in the house. And when I did, people just looked at me like they just said, they just saw like a unicorn like, whoa. Right. I'm like, what? You cussed. I'm like, I said, damn. Uh-huh. Yeah. And there's a lot of those those like light cusses that happen every now and then. But like I, I run a family friendly uh, podcast uh, over over on my other podcast. And so we don't do any swears at What's all. What's the name of the there? podcast? Uh, Character Creation Cast. Uh, oh, there we go. A podcast where we create characters so you don't have to. No. <laughs> it's, a, it's a really fun, uh, chill podcast. Uh, and we we try to keep it family friendly because we want people to listen with their kids. So kids can kind of get the joy of role playing as well. Right. And uh, And we don't want, you know lot of those bad words in there because goodness gracious kids get exposed to those in too many places already (laughs) yeah i understand Mm -hmm. when i first started this um show i didn't care how much i said it but now it's more like i would like to be sponsored and even though i hate that uh they care about what you say yeah i do need the money (laughs) money money is fine uh if you you know you do what you got to do if that's a, if that's a few less, if that's a few less cuss words, you know, so be it. But if if any of you listeners would like to hear me say cuss words, you could support us uh, on Anchor Support. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Go to Anchor.fm/slash/the-hitlist. Anchor Support. There you go. So 
let's get back to the topic. Um, the film we'll be discussing today is The Dark Crystal. The Dark Crystal is a 1982 dark fantasy film directed by Jim Henson and Frank Oz. The plot revolves around Jen and Kira, two gelflings on a quest to restore balance to the world of Thra and overthrow the evil ruling Skeksis by restoring a powerful broken crystal. The film was produced by ITC Entertainment and the Jim Henson Company and distributed by Universal Pictures. It stars the voices of Stephen Garlick, Lisa Maxwell, Billy Whitelaw, Percy Edwards, and Barry Denon. This film was on Ryan's list. Ryan, why was this film on your list? It's okay. So I was born in 1980. And for any anybody that was a child in the 80s, there is a very specific list of movies that seems like if you haven't watched these, what's wrong with you? Um, <laughs> so, um, like, I, I'm a huge fan of the never ending story, uh, uh, films like Willow, uh, th- those sorts of like, you know, old school epic fantasy type type movies. And I don't know why I had never gotten around to watching The Dark Crystal. The only thing I can think of is it came out in 1982. I was two years old at the time. There's no way I'd be watching a movie like that at two years old. Now, later 80s, maybe. But after watching it now, I don't think I would have survived. <laughs> there, this movie is scary. It's very creepy. It yeah. is. I did. I did. I heard about it. I did not anticipate how like traumatic this this movie really is. When I was in middle school, it was around the time where VHSs were still being used. But it was like kind of like phasing out. Yeah. Um, our history teacher, she was showing us like a documentary, but like, you know how like before the movie would play, they'll play like the trailers and you just yeah. like skip forward for them. I guess she forgot to skip forward. And <laughs> we saw like from the Jim Henson company, like, oh, probably like a Muppets like movie. Yeah. And then we saw like the Skessies and we saw Jen and we're like, what the hell is this? This is <laughs> the guy from the Muppets doing this? I know. <laughs> so I, I've had an idea of what the dark crystal is about and i'm 26 now so like i always like knew about it and then there yeah. was that netflix series that came out a couple years ago yep and i believe they still use puppets for that one too mm-hmm. and so i always knew about it. i just never knew what happened in there yeah and when i was watching the movie i was thinking like are they not going to save the day is that why there's a netflix series like almost 40 years later <laughs> right so that at that so like at the at the climax I, like at the towards the end of the movie, I was actually on the edge of my seat because I'm like, is this why people are obsessed with this movie? Because they never solved it, they never saved right. the world. Right. And then when they did, I'm like, oh, okay, they really had to be on the edge of my seat because I really didn't know what was going to happen. I did right. not believe in these characters. <laughs> I did not have confidence in these characters to actually save the world. Right. So that's was... why you're on the edge of your seat. Well. It... Yes and no. I mean, I figured they would based on early 80s movie magic, you know, like the no matter how bad things get, the good guys win in the end. Right. That's mm-hmm. that's usually the stories that were told back then, unless you're talking about a trilogy. Um, and then the Empire Strikes Back happens and nobody's happy at the end of that. Movie. <laughs> 
Um, but with the Dark Crystal, yeah, it was it was kind of brutal throughout to these main characters, and and honestly, a lot of the side characters really got it bad. And and then right at the end there, like I I I could not predict exactly what was going to happen in this movie. Uh, you know, forty years later, watching this thing. Yeah, it's it's quite something. But overall, what did you think throughout the movie? Like, did you like it? Did you dislike it? I personally loved it. I absolutely loved it. I was fascinated by this movie throughout. Like, the the amount of work that oh, yeah. you can see went into this. The like, uh, the effort that they had to have had done to get these sorts of puppets working correctly is wild. Like I, I can tell that like they, they purposely tried to push their boundaries of what can puppetry do in this movie based on some of the things that they were presenting. Like I forget her name. There's that witch with the, the Agra. Yeah. With the wild workshop that with all the stuff spinning around. And then like, you know, you've got these giant beetle creatures that are like scattering oh, yeah. around. Uh, you know, puppets are pulling out their own eyes and looking <laughs> at you. It's it's wild, but like there there's a lot of interesting like technical filming stuff that they're doing here that I I really appreciate e- even now. Right? They don't do things like this anymore. Yeah, and that's something that is also discussed in the Wikipedia, where today it's with movies, it, it kind of sucks because they're not going to fund a movie unless it's a guaranteed hit, you know? Yeah. Like 10 years ago, maybe in like a few years before that, if a movie didn't succeed in the box office, it could still make back its money in the DVD sales or like yeah. rentals, whatever. Now that mm-hmm. doesn't exist. And so to, in order for a movie to be made... It needs to be a guaranteed hit every single time. That's why box office numbers yeah. always matter now. Mm-hmm. And back then, with this movie, there were concerns that it wouldn't make the money back. And the studio had had so, had sold like the studio to another mm-hmm. another production company. And there's also some talks of like the head he didn't have confidence in this movie, and so tried to delay it as possible. And then Jim Henson had to buy it back. From his wow. in order to release it with his own money. So wow. eventually it did make back its money. It had a budget of around $23 million, made okay. back around $41 million. So not that's that not bad. Much of, that's not bad. Yeah, not bad. I mean, Could be yeah. better, but you know what? It was a bomb, you know? Yeah. I mean, comparatively, right? Like, mm-hmm. I mean, you're you're talking about the era of Star Wars uh oh, just yeah. is coming out and like destroying the box offices and then like what uh return of the jedi was probably was that was like 82 83 uh i'm not a star wars there. fan i would i wouldn't know so uh, so it sounds right yeah so so it's like right around that time that people are anticipating this huge blockbuster and then this thing comes out and i can only imagine like the mindset of people in that time right mm-hmm. and you're also talking about like the muppets have been a thing for a bit and, and whatnot and like oh jim henson movie wait this is weird <laughs> right this isn't kermit right <laughs> what what is what is going on here but like uh jim henson and frank oz they're 
they're just geniuses at this craft and like you you can tell throughout the movie like all the like uh articulation in the different puppets the breathing that these things can do and like it's it's if you if you made this movie today it would cost so much more oh comparatively even after inflation's adjusted for and all that stuff yeah there's just not that big of a market for puppets anymore that's why whenever you can get puppets they're extremely specialized and they charge more because they know you can't get many other puppets out there in the market well, especially the amount of puppeteers that you would need for a movie this scale. Oh, yeah, bro. It's a lot. So, <laughs> so I, I, I'm going to dive deeper into this later on. But to operate just one of the sketches needed four people to puppeteer it. Four people. Four people. Just for one. Oh, that is wild. Yeah. And, and there I were more, 10 of them. And there were 10 of them. So, <laughs> yeah, they weren't all moving at the same time. Yeah. You know, um, there were moments where, like, you know, these two sketches were hitting the sword against the stone. Mm-hmm. Um, that probably required a lot of people on set. But mm-hmm. I can I get more into detail about that. I want to talk about, like, Jim Henson for a little bit. Yeah. So for those of you who don't know, I'm a UMD alum, University of Maryland College Park. And you know who else went to UMD? Uh, Mr. Jim Henson himself. And in fact, there is a statue of him with Kermit on campus you know he's like sitting at a bench and kermit's like on top of the bench like talking to him it's a very cute oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. statue it's a, it's a pretty famous statue too i think yeah and so they're, they're pretty proud of that fact as well and i don't have a weapon because i just moved and i still have some things in storage but i have a funko pop of jim henson holding kermit the frog so oh, amazing. i was like i have this mission to buy funko pops of people from maryland um so far I only have Jim Henson, but I'm looking to get Edgar Allan Poe as well. Oh. And I know John Waters like got a Funko Pop around like last year. So so far that's three people. Oh, Hopefully nice. I, I I can get one, you know. I just gotta get licensed. <laughs> right. <laughs> Someday, right? Someday. Yeah. I'm wearing this exact same shirt, you know, these headphones. Yep. Yeah, exactly. I mean, in the future, podcasting will be the new superstars. Uh, so buckle up for all the headphone Funko Pops out there. Yeah. And so (laughs) as far as Jim Henson, his work, we all know him from, you know, the Muppets. That's sort of his legacy, you know. Mm -hmm. He also worked on Sesame Street. But the thing is, he didn't go into doing this just to do children's media. He didn't want to be typecast into just children's media. In the first season of Saturday Night Live, there was this one section where it's kind of like, the Land of Gorch. There is yeah. this section called The Land of Gorch on the first season of Saturday Night Live. <laughs> Unfortunately, it was not well received. I've not seen any of the clips, but it looked like it's just, it wasn't the right place to put it, you know? Mm-hmm. But he took some inspiration of that onto The Dark Crystal, you know? Oh, interesting. And I think when he went into this movie, he wanted to create something new and original. And he also wanted to go back into the roots of Grimm's fairy tales. Because mm. original Grim fairy tales are not sweet like Disney no. movies. No, they're really not scary. Even remotely. Yeah, they're they're really scary. And so he just he did not believe that children should never be afraid. But I mm-hmm. think he went. I'm gonna be honest with you. I think he went a little too far with this one. Because <laughs> you think? <laughs> yeah. Um, they're even, they're 
Yeah, there were a couple scenes that I was just like, lean back a little bit, please. Honestly, like even the original Halloween movie is less scary than this movie. Yes, yes. Like there's there's a couple scenes in here that if you watch this as a kid, you would be traumatized. Oh, my gosh. For sure. Hundred percent. Um, like not even the 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 witch holding her eyeball to see uh this little gelfling uh that's hung up with all these little tentacle branch things. Uh but like near the end when the the essence gets pulled. Oh yeah, from, that's ex- like from the, the pod link. That blew my mind how horrifying like it was it wasn't just a pod lane, it was a little child oddly yeah oh i'm like uh, what do you what do you do what do you do (laughs) jim what what was in your mind why would you it was horrifying you know what would be interesting to see if they actually went if jim henson lived long enough to make a horror movie mm -hmm. oh can you imagine with the same idea as the Dark Crystal. Dark Crystal is intended for families. Can you believe that? It was intended for families. <laughs> well, it was the early 80s. So yeah. I, I can believe I can <laughs> believe that. They were a little more lax with like what was family entertainment back in the early 80s. Yeah, I I know that like 16 Candles is rated PG. Mm-hmm. And then like 10 minutes into the films, a giant pair. Of, I don't want to say giant pair, but like breasts are shown like right, right. Up on the screen. So it's very it's, different it's, to what we know now. It is very wild. Um, like I was prepared for spooky or like creepy with this movie. Like, um, as I said, never ending story. One of my favorites. I used to rent that all the time when I was a kid. Like uh, I would be, oh, we have to take it back. Let's re-rent it. Uh, and and I would just keep it for like weeks and weeks and just keep watching it over and over again. But like that had the the practical puppetry and stuff too and a lot of that was spooky but it wasn't anywhere near dark crystal spooky yeah i guess that's like something that you can appreciate about it too you know yeah it was it was like i said it was a trip (laughs) just seeing this movie it was just so wild and so out there and so over the top uh in some places yeah and that i also truly appreciate the the like you said the level of dedication that went into this like you can tell the people who worked on this saw this as a passion project and they put everything into it i mean it did yeah. take like five years to get this movie made uh okay, from major. conception all the way to execution mm-hmm. yeah just just some of the scenes i was looking i was like the coordination alone involved mm-hmm. in this scene has to be like next level like you can't mess it up because if you do an entire set piece is gonna go down oh yeah you know because like those those beetles are crashing through those walls any second now <laughs> and we can't have those walls being super stable if we have this puppet moving in the wrong place well there goes the whole set <laughs> so what was your favorite scene in the film oh wow um gosh there's there's a lot of really good scenes in this film but i think the one that that kind of stands out to me the most right now is a very simple scene where uh the two gelflings are in a boat and uh and and she's just singing and he pulls out his flute and starts playing and they're just like nice relaxing 
like break between the tension uh moment in the film it was a very beautiful scene um and it just kind of set the like pace of like these are the last two gulflings in existence and they get a little bit of a respite here before they're thrown into the fire again yeah that's really a cute like scene that. I, um, I also like there was, there was a lot of good stuff there though when i learned that for that scene in particular the puppeteers were literally lying flat on the boat <laughs> doing that <laughs> <laughs> and there is an actual river that they shot on too it wasn't like a oh, set really? piece they made it's an actual it, river. It looked like a set piece. It yeah. really did. So some scenes it was like a set. Like there's like yeah. some scenes it looks like like the foreground grass. You know mm-hmm. they did that, but for the most part, um, most of it is on like on an actual river. Yeah, I mean the the world that they they crafted like this movie had so much world building crammed mm-hmm. into the background, like all the different little wild puppets that were like, oh, here's a plant that's blinking at you. Yeah. Here's a here's what looks like a plant that just opens up and it's a giant maw. Uh, yeah. Here's a dog thing that is adorable. <laughs> that thing cracks me up. And then it's just like, and it's just got teeth upon teeth. <laughs> just <laughs> so many wild things in this movie. I think that's part of the reason that it took so long because Jim in the documentary I saw about the making of this film, he said that he wanted to build the world before making the movie. Yeah. And that so here's an example. So he said when you take a picture of someone, there's the subject, but then there's the background, and that background has its own history, like the grass, the trees, mm-hmm. the building, that all has its own history. And so he focused on what the background would be and the mm. history of the background before doing the movie and yeah. he put a lot into it he definitely yeah. made sure we we saw all that it's and, it's so cool uh and like the thing that fascinated me the most about the world building was the the way that this solar system is constructed right like that machine in the in the witch's shop with with all the different planets and moons oh and, yeah it's like that's where you kind of find out that it's three suns and and there's like dozens of other like uh planets or planetoids or moons or whatever uh all in this almost spherical weird orbiting pattern and i was like this is so full of like potential for other stuff right just in yeah. the background stuff alone like this this is a very well thought out world building like experiment and and you could you could just learn so much just by paying attention to only the world building in this movie yeah so when i saw like the the machine at first i was like is that cgi no that can't be it's 1982 no. Right? no they actually they actually built it i know <laughs> they actually built it yeah, and and like the the puppets are ducking under the thing as it's like mm. flying around the room, and uh, and then they destroy. <laughs> so it's like, goodness, all the time that they put so, into this. Yeah, I didn't mention what my favorite scene was, but I will tell yes. you right now. It's that scene where Kira takes Jen to the podlings, and it's like kind of like a bar. Um, oh yeah. 
they're all like partying. I'm like, yeah, these dudes know how to party. They're having fun. And then Jen takes out his flute and starts smashing his music along to their music, and they're having yeah. even more fun. Oh, and I thought like, that was fantastic too. Yeah, it's just like saying like this like break between like all the spookiness, like these people yep. of the earth, like they know how to fun, they know how to live. Yeah, um, you see how they were corrupted by the Skeksis, and then I hated it. <laughs> I didn't, I want to say I hated it, but like I was so di- so upset when the the Gartham the the shell like machines yeah. just literally crash the party like they're coming literally crashing through the set and just start kidnapping the podlings i'm like no uh, right it was it was like bad enough like oh they're uh they're here to attack oh man now they're going to be killing all these podlings that's really annoying but then they start kidnapping them and that's the first sign of really bad things are about to happen <laughs> because like yeah now and now I know what happens to them after they're kidnapped and like how horrifying and traumatizing that is. So that, oh, yeah. that, that makes that scene even worse in hindsight. Yeah. So it just makes sure you, you want the sketches to fall. Like all yeah. oh, the stakes are a lot higher than you might think. Exactly. Yeah. So who is your favorite character? Oh, um, Gosh, I know who my least favorite character was, uh, but let's see who my favorite character was. Mm-hmm. Um, it probably would have to because I'm really bad at names. Uh, so uh, Kira, I think. Yeah, Kira uh, was probably my favorite character Same. Uh, because like she had this confidence and and whatnot that that really was uh, a little surprising for I'm the last of my kind, right? Yeah. She had this like confidence of like, I can do what I need to do and I don't care about the consequences. And, and she did and she was amazing at it. And then like the reveal near the end with what her special ability is, uh, <laughs> that was just like icing on the cake right and it just made so many things make sense throughout the rest of the movie yeah like a couple of my favorite scenes with her that kind of like ensured why i liked her more was when they're on the boat right and there's like this one thing chasing after them and she has like a slingshot and just like hits it with one shot i'm like whoa she's strapped she's strapped (laughs) yeah it's like (laughs) (laughs) and the second scene, when they go to like the the palace, and the Gartham are there, she mm. doesn't even like wait. She like come. She just like goes in there and starts attacking. Like whoa, oh, he, yeah, like, just choosing violence. Yeah. yeah, and she's like hiya. <laughs> I'm like what? Yeah. And then the wings. <laughs> oh yeah, and the wings come out of nowhere. Like wait, you have wings? Only girls have them. Only girl gatlings uh, have them. <laughs> why don't I have them? You're a boy. <laughs> Yeah, it's just so it's just so wild of the world building of like this this race of people that there's only two of, so we only have the two vantage points, and then everything else. I I would be so fascinated to go and watch this movie again and look at all the like background clues of what the the Gelflings are all about. Oh because yeah, because you get you get some like old ancient Gelfling runes. 
you've got some like mentions of Gelflings and stuff like that. And I wonder if there's like any clues that are like spread throughout to kind of foreshadow the stuff that we see later on in the movie. I know for the Skeksis and for the Mystics, there were some clues for them for what was going to happen. Like I didn't see it, but like when I yeah. read later on, the the shapes are surrounding each of these characters. Yeah. Was supposed to show how they were actually connected, you know. Oh, interesting. Because yeah. I, I had a hunch the instant, like first they said there was only ten remaining Skeksis, and then like later on they're like there's only ten remaining wise ones or whatever they're called, and I'm like, huh, seems like an awful big coincidence that there's only <laughs> ten of each of them left. I there has to be a connection, but I had no clue. Until they re the, until they revealed it, I had no clue that that was the type of connection it was going to be. I had an idea about it. Like, are these connected? Because there were two instances when Jen like cuts the one the Chamberlain gets sees, yep. and then he's wounded. But then another mystic uh, yeah. is wounded that has the same wound. I'm like, whoa, what's going on yeah. here? First, and I then, thought that was the crystal. That, that yeah, was my first right? thought. I was like, that could be the crystal. But then... The and then part. afterwards, when... Uh, I'm not sure if it was Jen or Kira or someone pushes another Skeksis into the fire pit. Yeah. <laughs> and then you see uh, the next scene, um, one of the mystics just explodes out of nowhere and vanishes. Yeah. yeah. And I was like, what? And then the mystics just look <laughs> and then just keep on walking because they know what's going on. But we don't know. <laughs> No, and I'm like, so what? Yeah, connected. that's 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 the point that I was like, okay, now I get it. They are absolutely connected, and they are like bonded somehow, like both sides of the same coin, effectively, right? Yeah. So I kind of figured that makes sense, but then once they all got into that chamber and started chanting, I was like, the convergence. <laughs> It makes sense now. Because <laughs> yeah. like the, throughout the whole movie, they're like, the convergence is coming. It's it's the either the end of everything or the beginning. We don't know. And then it's like mm -hmm. all this mysterious thing. They call the apocalypse the convergence. And I'm like, oh, now I get it. This this does make sense. The way they kept talking about the convergence, I kept thinking of the Witcher and the reason why the monsters exist is because like two worlds collided and that's why mm. monsters exist alongside humans mm -hmm. and all that. So I think the Witcher took some inspiration from this movie. We that's can't say possible. for sure. That's very possible. Sure. I mean, this is a very iconic and influential movie. Even if it was just subconscious, this is one of those movies that's like ingrained in pop culture, right? Oh yeah. And, and if you've seen it, it will not leave your brain. I am sure of that. <laughs> because the imagery alone is enough to stay with you and haunt you forever. Do you have any like final thoughts? I I just love like from the opening scene with the narration like that made it really feel like an epic fantasy novel mm -hmm. um all the way to to the end like where you're you're actually you're rooting for people you don't know how it's going to turn out and then uh, and then things turn out nice in the end and it kind of wraps itself up afterwards and all the execution in between. Um, I really like this movie. Awesome. 
Um, I'm going to be honest with you. I wasn't that much of a fan of it, you know? Yeah. Like it's hard for me to say that because I'm a huge fan of Jim Henson and Frank Oz. And I appreciate the love of dedication that went into this movie. Mm Mm-hmm. It just wasn't my type of movie. I guess I just didn't like the characters enough. Except for Kira. Kira was yeah. the best character out of everyone. Kira was amazing. Yeah, it, I I can understand that completely. It's it's a little out there for a fantasy movie. Mm-hmm. Um, and it it seems tropey in some places because it was in the era of defining the tropes. Yeah. Right? Uh so uh from today's eyes, yeah, I can I can 100% see that. All right, so we're going to talk about the production of this movie. So I kind of hinted it towards this early on, but this movie took around five years to make. So Jim Henson's inspiration for the visual aspects of the film came out around 1975, around 1976, after he saw an illustration by Leonard B. Lubin in the 1975 edition of Lewis Carroll's poetry showing crocodiles living in a palace and wearing elaborate robes and jewelry. (laughs) So this was kind of like the inspiration that served as like what the sketches would eventually look like. Yeah. Um, the film's conceptual roots lay in Henson's short-lived The Land of Gorch, which also took place in an alien world with no human characters. According to co-director Frank Oz, Henson's intention was to, quote, get back to the darkness of the original Grimm's fairy tales, unquote, as he believed it was unhealthy for children to never be afraid. <laughs> to this I say, Jim, you didn't have to go all the way out. <laughs> no, 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 no. Uh, just pull it back a little. You know, there, there's a little bit of a break on the creative process you could have done, but he, he just went full pedal to the metal. He he could have done like Scooby-Doo creepy, you know? Uh-huh. Uh, but he was like, no, that's too childish. We yeah. go even further. We can scare the parents too. Yep. <laughs> yep. <laughs> that's, a, that's a lights on throughout the house type of night. Uh, oh, Watching yeah. that. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. So Henson formulated his ideas into a 25-page story he entitled The Crystal which he wrote while snowed in at an airport hotel. And most of the philosophical undertones of the film were inspired by Jen Roberts' Seth material, which, by the way, I learned this today. The Seth material is a collection of writings dictated by Jane Roberts to her husband from late 1963 until her death in 1984. Roberts claimed the words were spoken by a discarnate entity named Seth. Oh. So Henson, he kept multiple copies of the book Seth Speaks and insisted that Froud the concept concept artist and screenwriter David Odell to read it prior to collaborating for the film. Oh, wow. The film was shot at Elstree Studios from April to September 1981, and exterior scenes were shot in the Scottish Highlands, Gordale Scar, North Yorkshire, England, and Twycross, Cross, Leicestershire, Leicestershire, England. I don't know how English people speak about... I don't know how they pronounce their cities, but I think I said it right. <laughs> Once the film was completed, the film's release was delayed after Lou Grade sold ITC Entertainment to Robert Holmes Alcourt, who was skeptical of the film's potential due to the bad reactions at the preview and the need to revoice the film's soundtrack. The film was afforded minimal advertisement and release until Hanson bought it from Holmes Alcourt and funded its release with his own money. Wow. Look at that. He believed in himself. Yeah. I And it's... And it's good because like this, this was a generation defining movie. Oh yeah. Right. And like, if you were born uh, early to mid seventies to 
the super early 80s like me, it's one of those movies that everybody says you had to have watched at some point. And I missed it. So Brian Frode was, I think it's Froud or Frode, whatever. Uh, I'm going to say Froud. <laughs> was chosen as concept artist after Henson saw one of his paintings in the book Once Upon a Time. The characters in the film are elaborate puppets and none are based on humans or any other specific Earth creature. And before its release, The Dark Crystal was billed as the first live action film without any human beings on screen and, quote, a showcase for cutting edge animatronics. Mm. And I will say, I saw the documentary about the making of this film, and they did say that in the first like minute, like, it's the first live action film without any humans. Like, yeah. Oh, that's okay. Wild. <laughs> that's yeah, wild. yeah, yeah. Human performance inside a puppet supplied basic movement for the larger creatures, which in some cases was dangerous or exhausting. For example, the Gartham costumes. Mm-hmm. If you remember the shell-like creatures, they were yeah. so heavy. They were, they were 70 pounds. Oh, and no. The, the performers had to be hung up on a rack every few minutes to rest oh, while still why? inside the costumes. Oh, no. Yeah. That's they were hung up like a, so dedication. Like hung up like clothes. That's how it was like hung up. Yeah. And when he conceptualized the sketches, Henson had in mind the seven deadly sins. Though because there are ten sketches, some sins had to be invented or used twice. Frode originally designed them to be resemble deep sea fish, but later designed them to be as part reptile, part predatory bird, part dragon, with mm-hmm. an emphasis on giving them like that penetrating stare. Like yeah. Mm. Oh god, that that care. Okay, that care. No, <laughs> that, that that annoyed me so much. The, the whimper. Yeah. Every time it was like, it was the same. I, I know. Oh, and I get why they did that because they wanted it to be distinct. And he was the only character that did that in the movie. And I I instantly knew when he was around. He he creeped me out in a like uh a, a this is a gross person sort of way. Yeah. Instead of like, this is a creepy animatronic puppet sort of way. Yeah. And I'm so glad. Like, I did not have the confidence in Jen to not go forward with the sketches playing. Like, come with me. We shall have peace. Like, uh-huh. I was like, Jen, say no. Don't, say don't no. Don't do it. Don't and he do actually it. Said, he actually said no. I'm like, thank you. Thank you. Yes. Don't accept that candy. This is a stranger. <laughs> <laughs> Don't accept that candy. <laughs> <laughs> so each Getsy suit required a main performer whose arm will be extended over his or her head in order to operate the creature's facial movements oh, while the other wow. arm operated its left hand. Another performer would operate the Getsy's right arm and a team of four technicians operated the Getsy's hand and face animatronics. And the Getsy's performers since they couldn't see that they, they compensated for the lack of vision by having a monitor tied to the chest inside the costume oh wow yeah you should have seen it's like it's like having a blanket over your head right yeah and th- since the hand is like doing the facial movements they can't see what's going on so they had to like tie oh, wow. like a, like a monitor to their chest inside there to see what's going on wow they they did an amazing job though goodness yeah. So four technicians yeah. just to operate the hand and face. So like when you see like the back, if I can't show the video because I don't have the copyright to that, I'm not going to risk mm-hmm. it. But if you go see it on your own, 
the behind the scenes of like the movement of these. It's literally four people on all together in a crowd moving these puppets all around. Oh wow! Just for one puppet, a four that had to have been hot in there. Yeah. Oh wow! Just a sauna, a mobile sauna. So. In designing the mystics, Vraud portrayed them as being more connected to the natural world than their sketches counterparts. He incorporated like geometric symbolism throughout the film in order to hint at the implied unity of the two races. So the mystics were the hardest creatures to perform because the ha- actors had to walk on their haunches. So like, you know, like kind of mm-hmm. like a squat, like butt to their heels type of squat. Yeah. And like walking and with their hand reached out forward. So like their hand is actually the head. And... They'll oh, like wow. walk like that forward, and Henson stated because and like the full weight of the head was on their hand too, yeah. so it was really hard to do it. Henson stated that he could hold a position in the mystic costume for only five to ten seconds. Wow! So he was amazed like at the performers who were able to do this for like minutes at a time. Yeah, I I can't imagine doing that. You know, well, you know, you hear about actors getting jacked before these superhero films. <laughs> I can imagine these puppet performers are like, I got to do what now? I'm going to hit the gym a little bit. Yeah. Some of the performers were people who are like dancers and mimes. So yeah, they had dancers are usually like, they've got some nice toning going on. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And endurance as well, especially it depends on the type of dancing, but yeah, absolutely. Like I didn't know how jacked dancers were until I met some Broadway actors. I'm like, whoa. Whoa! They, like I knew, they, I always heard yeah. that like ballet dancers were like jacked, you know, like and that oh, that yeah. made sense to me because they had to lift the the ballerinas, yeah. you know, like up yeah. over there. Yeah, but when I met them in person, I'm like, holy crap! Maybe I got into the wrong <laughs> profession. I should have gotten to become a dancer, you know. Yeah. <laughs> uh, keep keep yourself well toned and and uh, lift those people constantly and look, and look graceful doing it too. Uh huh. Something that most people don't know about me. I took a ballet for a few weeks, right? And it was a lot harder than any martial arts training I'd ever done because I was not used to yep. doing it. Just no. standing up on my toes was torture. You know, yeah. I, and I wasn't on my toes like this. It was like still like a little bent. Yeah. But still, I was like, ooh, I had to like stand up straight, like do like yeah. that. Oh, yeah. I was like, you, using those muscles you never use and that's going to tire you out fast. Oh, yeah. So... Back to the to the design. The Gelflings <laughs> were designed and sculpted by Wendy Medenier, uh, now Wendy Frode. Um, mm. Fun fact, she designed Yoda. Oh. Yeah. So cool. they're also difficult to perform because they're meant to be the most human creatures of the in the film. And so their mm-hmm. movements, particularly their gaits, had to be realistic as possible. So during scenes when the Gelfling's legs are off camera, the performers had to like walk on their knees in order to make the character movements more lifelike. And mm. Henson also said in the, in for the Muppets, with Kermit, he could just like move up and down, you know, because he's yeah. kind of like a cartoon character. But with like the Gelflings, they had to like look like they're actually walking. Yep. Yeah. And Agra was originally envisioned as a, quote, busy, curious little creature, unquote, called Habitabat. The name was rejected by Brian Froud because he found its name too similar to Habitat, a retailer mm. he despised. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, honestly, I would feel the same way if I was making a movie and one of the characters' name was like Walmar. I'm like, no, oh. we're not naming it Walmar. No. no. <laughs> <laughs> so even though that store... No longer exists, and if it does, probably on a different name. 
Yeah. I can understand where he's coming from with that. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. So the character was re-envisioned as a seer or prophet and renamed Agra. And in selecting a voice actor for Agra, Henson was inspired by Zira Mostel's performance as, quote, kind of an insane bird trying to overcome Tourette's syndrome, unquote, on Watership Down. Oh. <laughs> and although the character was originally voiced by Frank Oz, Henson wanted a female voice and subsequently selected Billy Whitelaw. Oh, interesting. And the character Fizzgig was that little dog character was invented yeah. by Oz who wanted a character who served the same function as the Muppet Poodle, Fufu, feeling that, like Miss Piggy, the character Kira needed an outlet for her caring, nurturing side. The character's design was meant to convey the idea of a, quote, boyfriend repellent, unquote, to contrast the popular idea that it is easier to form a bond with a member of the opposite sex with the assistance of a cute dog. <laughs> Still used today. <laughs> so... The podlings, I like the the way they design the podlings. Mm-hmm. They're envisioned as like people in complete harmony with their natural surroundings, and thus mm-hmm. Froud based their design on that of potatoes. Oh, yeah, and the village, the village was modeled on the Henson family home. Oh, interesting. And in design of Gartham, Froud took inspiration from the discarded carapaces of his and Henson's lobster dinners. Oh, <laughs> I can see that. I can yeah. definitely see that. Uh huh. That was it for development and design. And I'm gonna talk a little bit about the reception about this movie. So, mm-hmm. uh, it received mixed response upon its original release. Mm-hmm. It has earned more positive reception in later years, becoming a favorite with fans of Henson and fantasy. Mm-hmm. Vincent Canby of the New York Times negatively reviewed the film, describing it as a quote watered down J.R.R. Tolkien without charm as well as interest. Oh. Kevin Thomas gave it a more positive assessment in the Los Angeles Times, quote, saying, quote, Unlike many screen fantasies, the Dark Crystal casts a spell from its very first frame and proceeds so briskly that it's over before you realize it. You're left with the feeling that you have just awakened from a dream, unquote. So that's pretty oh, wow. nice, you know? Richard Corliss of Time Magazine wrote, quote, The invention is impressive. There's little indication of the Henson Oz trademark, a sense of giddy fun. Audiences nourished on the sophisticated child's play of the Sesame Street Muppets and the musical camaraderie of the Muppet Show may not be ready to relinquish pleasure for all as they enter Dark Crystal's palatial cavern. Which makes sense. I was yeah. not ready for that. <laughs> it sounds like one of those one-star reviews that actually is a five-star review because that's right. exactly what they were going for. <laughs> yeah. He's <laughs> like, how dare they make an amazing film? Like, I know, right? That, that, was, that was the point. How dare yeah. they talk about racism? That that was the entire point. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. <laughs> and Variety praised the film as a, quote, a dazzling technological and artistic achievement that could teach a lesson in morality to youngsters at the same time it is entertaining their parents. And Colin Greenland, reviewing for Imagine Magazine, stated that, quote, The Dark Crystal is a technical masterpiece with splendid special effects work by a team two dozen strong. It may be that they did well to keep the story simple, and then lavish a wealth of detail on it rather than go for a more complicated fantasy and fail. Nice. And I don't want to go too much into detail about the franchise. Mm-hmm. There was like a canceled sequel that had been going on for years. Oh, um, interesting. There, it was like in development hell. I mean, they just didn't move forward with it. There's mm-hmm. novelizations, there's comics, and eventually the prequel series that was, that was released on Netflix and canceled after one season, as you'd expect from Netflix. Mm-hmm. It, so they don't give anything a chance anymore. Like, I think, and this is my speculation. Yeah, 
I think the reason why they don't give anything a chance or the reason why they cancel it way too soon is because they don't give it a chance to actually like release once a week, you know, because we've all seen this like a a show would drop, right? And Mm -hmm. all 10 episodes are available and people talk about it for like a week, maybe even two weeks and they like it. But then it falls off because there's like something else to watch. Yep. But then Netflix interprets that as like a failure. But if they actually just release it over ten weeks, mm-hmm. people will like It'd be build totally up the different. Hype. You've it, got it, the the Disney Plus model. I I when when streaming services started doing that, I was like, "What are you doing? Give me the whole season." And then now I'm thinking the same thing. Like, yeah, slow burn that. Give let me watch in the moment let me get the the water cooler like talking points yes that everybody's going to be on the same page for because everybody's watching the same episode this week right not oh where are you in the series oh i finished first day no i finished uh five days after it released i'm still on episode two what are you guys doing yeah you know and I'm not sure about you, but I'm chronically online. And so, like, whenever a new movie or a show would release, spoilers immediately. Like, immediately. Uh, immediately. Like, like, I'm on episode you one. You can't avoid start, it. I want to start episode one, but, like, people are always waiting, like, episode 10. Like, yo, did you see the ending? Like, why? What are you doing? What are you doing? But if we did it, like, <laughs> on the schedule, released yeah. once a week, it would mm-hmm. make sense. And here's what I think Netflix could do. They could have like seven shows released at the same time or around the mm-hmm. same time and for each of them release on a different day of the week, you know? Mm-hmm. So you can like build anticipation for all the shows. Yeah. But you know what? I'm just some guy, you know? Just, just some guy that's watching just, some movies that... I, 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 I know how people feel about the hype, you know? I'm just some guy, yeah. you know, in the internet <laughs> with his own opinions. Uh-huh. I don't know about you, Netflix, but you could use this guy to help you. <laughs> hey, uh, give Jason a job to make your stuff better. Because anyone, anyone, give me a job. I could use a job. Anyone, <laughs> anyone, anyone. <laughs> but yeah. yeah, no, I know exactly what you're saying. And that's that's what happened with like House of the Dragon too, where mm-hmm. it felt like it was going on for like weeks because they were releasing once a week. Yeah, yeah. and if they released all the episodes on the same day. They probably would have only talked about it for like a month at least. Yeah. At least, and yeah. Now there's like anticipation because people got the chance to like catch up on the series before the finale. Mm-hmm. And I haven't seen the show. I was thrown off by Game of Thrones ever since season five. And uh, yep. thankfully, I never saw the last season because I knew it was going to suck. And I was right. And so right. when I learned what happened in the ending, I was like, I'm glad I didn't waste my time. But people still like this series enough to watch the prequel series. And that model, I think, really helped HBO Max. Like, mm-hmm. just to like, get more, gain more of an audience. So, yeah. Netflix, here's my idea for you. Give shows a chance by giving them a slow burn. Mm-hmm. And, and don't cancel them after four episodes. Literally. I, I have seen that too many times. You cannot have a slow burn story anymore. You can't have a story that's like starting off mundane and then working its way to something spectacular anymore because the attention of these executives is nothing. And that's very disappointing. 
Yeah, it really sucks. And like it's like what I said earlier, they won't they won't take a chance unless it's a guaranteed hit anymore. Yep. It yep. has to be guaranteed. That's why there's so many remakes because the IP is like it's it's it already has an audience. audience. Yeah, it already yeah. has an audience. And so it's a guarantee to at least have some amount of people to watch it. Yeah. But as we've seen this year, people really want original movies. They saw mm-hmm. everything everywhere all at once, which is a very different type of movie that people would see when mm-hmm. they all saw it there was the black phone and mm-hmm. barbarian what else was there new oh, yeah. there was nope which nope yep uh had the backing of jordan peele as it which makes sense you know he's a, he's now growing himself as a director people like him yep but yeah i just had you had these type of movies that are original movies that most studios want to take a chance on they want to do like reboots they want to do superhero movies but mm. people still want the originals you know yeah Give them a chance. There's, a, there's definitely a place for it. That concludes our conversation today. Thank you so much, Ryan, for being here. So let me ask you real quick. Was yes. The Dark Crystal a hit or a miss with you? Absolute hit uh, with me, 100%. Uh, easy, easy four and a half out of five stars uh, if I were to give it a rating. Yeah. So for me, it's it's hard for me to say, you know. Um, <laughs> you don't I, want a whole generation on your back. <laughs> I we I watched Barbarella Barbarella for this season as well, and mm-hmm. technic I said it was a technical hit because although I did not like care for the story or most of the acting, I had a huge appreciation for the design, the mm-hmm. art that went into it. This one creeped me out a little too much, but you know what? <laughs> after talking about it, after thinking about it, I think this is a technical hit as well. Nice, nice. I I could see just from watching the movie the love and dedication that went into. The puppetry. It was considered mm-hmm. groundbreaking at the time as well. Oh yeah. The the design, how it's very creepy and outlandish. And the fact that you don't see something like that these days is mm-hmm. very rare to it was very rare to find. Yeah. So for that, for me, it's a technical hit. Even though I wasn't too much of a fan of like some of the characters, I think for this one, also technical hits. There you go. We we got you there. <laughs> it, it was gonna be a miss it was very close it was very I close i know but after talking about it i'm like you know what technical hit nice nice so anything you'd like to promote uh yeah if if you like the sound of my voice and my uh out outlandish thoughts on uh dark crystal doesn't exactly translate but you know i do love world building and i do love character creation and that's why i have a podcast that's all about that um myself and my co-host amelia antrim we uh we invite guests onto our show to create characters for the favorite role-playing games mm-hmm. uh and the show's name is character creation cast so, so it's nice and easy to find uh you can find us on twitter at creation cast or online at charactercreationcast.com Awesome. And where can we find you on social media? You can find me online uh, pretty much everywhere at Lord Neptune. I am Lord Neptune on Twitter, Lord Neptune dash RB for my initials on Tumblr. Uh, In case Twitter burns, I just joined (laughs) Tumblr. Uh, We'll see what happens. And pretty much everywhere else. You can also find most of my stuff uh, online at LordNeptune.com. Awesome. So that's it for today, folks. You've been listening to the Hit List Podcast. This was Season 5, Episode 8. My name is Jason, and until next time, cross off a new film from your list.